Ultimately, everything kind of boils down to one question. What's the fucking point? So let's talk about it. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and this podcast brings a little levity and a lot of curiosity to some of the biggest questions and ideas that we meager humans can ponder. Join me and our guests each week as we dig into topics around psychology, human behavior, consciousness, spirituality, philosophy, and more, all with a healthy dose of existential angst. And now, today's episode. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast for episode number 33. I am super excited to bring you this one because I had the joy of interviewing one of my longest term friends. I don't, what is the phrase you use for that? Longest lifelong friends. Um, Nicole Borowski, we've been friends since we were itty bitty. And ever since uh, she graduated college, she's just been kind of a tumbleweed all around the world, traveling and doing different kinds of environmental education work that has been super inspirational for me to hear from her throughout the years. And I am so excited for you guys to hear some of that from her because her passion shines through so clearly and we had this interview scheduled before I sort of came up with my new idea of doing monthly themes and chose the theme of consistency for April but I wanted to go ahead and share it here first of all because I just wanted to get it out to you second of all We do talk about consistency a little bit in the episode. You'll hear that at a couple of different points, including how we can all be more consistently good stewards of the natural world, which is a super important application of consistent behavior. So a little more about Nicole. Nicole Borowski hails from College Station, Texas where she earned a bachelor's degree in environmental studies and Spanish at Texas A&M University. Nicole's study abroad program involved sea turtle conservation in Costa Rica, which sparked a keen interest and passion from tropical for tropical waters and all of their inhabitants. Nicole traveled throughout Latin America and discovered the magical world of scuba diving, which P.S. you'll hear in the interview. I'm like, mm, don't think you're ever going to get me to go scuba diving, but we'll see. Her skills underwater were sharpened even more in work that followed in travels. She began teaching students in California's coastal kelp forests at the Ambassadors Program on Catalina Island and continued her environmental education career as a naturalist in French Polynesia on board a small cruise ship. Dabbling in colder climates, she taught students in urban environments in San Francisco, California, and Portland, Oregon, and quickly gave up the cold to return to the tropical Caribbean. She now resides in Dorado, Puerto Rico, where she manages the Ambassadors of the Environment program based at a Ritz-Carlton Reserve. So I think you're going to love this conversation, and hopefully you'll enjoy some of our silly little anecdotes from growing up, too. And that's all I really have. I mean, you'll hear about some of the things that I've been up to recently with my eco-psychology, learning and training. And yeah, the weather is warming up here finally in Tennessee and I'm loving that. And still being a super nerd, building out my new website at shinebrightwith.me. So look for some more additions there soon. And Before we get into the interview, just brief disclaimer, there is something funky going on with my mic. I don't know what it is. I'm probably just going to have to get a new one um, because it's never done this before and I think it's definitely the mic and not my whatever garage band. 
So you'll hear the levels between me and Nicole are a little funky, but it definitely isn't to the point of it being unusable. So hopefully you can bear with me while I get that figured out and enjoy this episode with Nicole Baraski. Oh my goodness. So as you can see... I love it. Yeah. I, I decided that I wanted to record outside since we're talking about nature. Yes. And, which, by the way, we're, the we're recording now. Huh? Oh, sorry. No, Is that the backyard that I saw? No, when I came? you have not been here yet. So your next trip, you know, what, that you're heading to the States and not Texas, you'll have to come check it out. In real yeah, life. It's really, it's really beautiful. Um, but yeah, so I figured it would be neat to get some like nature sounds and also we might get a little bit of tripping and road sounds, but hey, that's country life in the city-ish area, so. Neat. Well, you might hear some cokey tree frogs from my end, uh, perhaps my cats like jumping into my lap and the sounds of reggaeton or perhaps also <laughs> if you're lucky because my neighbors like to hang out. How is the menagerie of animals doing this week? Oh, my zoo is wonderful. <laughs> of all my little adopted street pets. Um, they're good. Yeah, Mona is growing. She's a little sausage, and she's getting bigger and, and more rimbo. what type of dog? I know she's like a rescue, but what type of dog is she? she the veterinarian called her a <clears throat> Puerto Rican terrier, which basically means mutt mixed with all kinds of things. She has the face of uh, like an Australian shepherd or a German shepherd, the body of like a dachshund, and like the little legs and tiny feet of a dachshund, and uh, yeah, the will so she's of got um, the face of Russell Crowe, the body of Danny DeVito, and <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. That was yes, dead on. perfect. <laughs> uh, I mean, Russell Crowe's not German, but I couldn't think of anybody that fast. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so I was thinking, and I know I told you that I uh, just went on this weekend excursion to Canada, my first time on Canadian soil. And yes, they say A as much as you think they do. They um, do. It's ri- it's ridiculous. I loved them. They were great. And so it was my first of four weekends throughout the coming year of an eco-psychology training. And holy shit, it was awesome. Um, why did I bring this up right now? I am forgetting. Oh, because, next because time you want to take it with you. Obviously, obviously. <laughs> Um, But one of the things that we had to do in preparation was writing our ecological autobiography. And so really exploring kind of our our origin story background related to the natural world. And and I it's so interesting. You start to kind of question all of the terms that we just sort of use by default, like nature, talking about nature and quote the environment is kind of misleading because like. Uh, we're fucking nature, like you know. So yeah. we're not something that's separate from separate. nature. Yeah. Doesn't mean getting in your car and going to the campsite. So anyway, all that to say, it was a very interesting um, exercise for me to do, and I would love to hear a little about sort of your first experiences uh, relating to the natural world. Like, what did your childhood look like in relation to the natural world? Yeah. Well, good question. Um... I mean, it's funny because it all involved being around my family who were hunters, uh, killing animals. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't partake, right? I, I'm not a big deer hunter or even a big angler, but all the, um, you know, my brother, my father, my cousins, like everybody's really into fishing and hunting, you know, birds and deer and, and things that are always in season. Um, so it wasn't just any off the cuff hunting, but what it did was it put me in touch with uh, for me, it was a camping trip, right? And so we would go and stay out on the deer lease or, um, 
you know, out in these pretty cool parts of Texas. I mean, ecologically, uh, for me, it was fascinating. And of course, I'm not waking up to go hunt a meal. And at first, you know, as a kid, I thought, oh my gosh, my dad is killing Bambi. Like, what a savage. What a savage. And then I thought about it and I was like, wait a minute, this is really cool. And I defend him to this day because, you know, I feel like as much as humans encroach on, on animals' land, you do have that issue of overpopulation, and in the short term, they're they're starving. And frankly, to catch a deer, not catch, hunt, you know, he always makes fun of me, a deer in the wild is much different than going to the supermarket and being so disconnected from that slab of meat that you purchase, right? So in as much as now, I, you know, I still cringe at the thought of the memory I have of them quartering a deer and seeing them skin it, seeing them gut it, it's, you know... But when I look at it, I'm like, wow, it's amazing that they have that talent. They can do that. They can fully process an animal and then serve it to their family. And and I can eat it. And I know what that animal looked like. And I know that it lived a free and wild life. I know that it wasn't kept in captivity. And uh, it died quickly because they always do it in a very, um, you know, in the most efficient way possible, of course, to minimize suffering and um, I know that you're vegan, so I know that you're also cringing right now, but I do have a lot of respect for hunters because I think really taking, continuing a tradition which, which puts us more in touch with nature, it puts us more in touch with our food. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a big, again, I don't fish, I don't hunt, um, and I'm for all intents and purposes vegetarian, mm-hmm. but I do respect it a lot, and I love that it introduced me to the natural world, and it introduced me to... Um, you know, what, what it means to be quiet and to, you know, walk through the woods mindfully. Of course, that's not the term that my father would use. But <laughs> Like, Dad, what a beautiful walking meditation this is. And, and Greg would be like, huh? He's <laughs> like, pass my beer. <laughs> beer <Hold> um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll just do a brief, like, sidebar about this. Because, I mean, obviously, like you said, it's, do I want do I like the idea of people hunting animals? Of course not. And that's, that's said within the context of the privilege that I live in, right? Of I have access to um, plenty of rice and beans and tofu and fresh vegetables and fruits and like all of these things. So I'm not like, that's not my only option. Right. And that's the case for a lot of us, of us like Westerner, middle class and up folks um but there are a lot of places in the world where that's not really a convenient um workable option for them and by all means people need to do what they need to do to secure their own nutrition Uh, but even within say the folks like like your family like your dad who are are consuming meat who don't quote need to be consuming meat i i also agree with what you said about like the connection between like you saw the animal and even Mm -hmm. if it was distressing to you which like here you know sidebar should be distressing but um (laughs) but you knew right there was that connection there and I think for me and most people who grow up where that's not such a visible part of our experience there's more of the total disconnect and dissociation from the fact it's like, yes, I might know sort of intellectually once I'm old enough to understand that the chicken on my plate is a chicken or the hamburger on my plate is a cow, but I've never had to experience it firsthand. I've never had to like draw that connection with my own eyes and ears. And, and so I think that's a big part of the problem. And 
as much as I would love for nobody to be killing animals who doesn't have to be, I think that I have a lot more respect for people who are willing to, I mean, not that I don't respect people, whatever, but you know what I mean? Like I have reverence for the, the process of someone who is willing to like honor what they're doing to make the connection as opposed to like, Oh, I, it really irks me when people are just like, Oh, I'm an animal lover, da da da. But they, they don't think twice about like, like they would say I would never hurt an animal, but then they go and eat like the quote grass fed beef. It's right. like, you know, say that you're a pet lover and that you respect animals, but like honor that you are doing violence to them. You're just paying someone else to do it. And as long as you're right. comfortable owning that, then fine, do what you're going to do. But anyway so that's that's my sidebar but going back to like the context at which you were sharing that um I think it's cool that you had exposure to the natural world because that was part of what I was noticing on my own reflection is I you know there were there were exceptions like I can point to a handful of memories and stuff but there wasn't a lot from my childhood and and you you know I was deathly afraid of dogs including what was your dog's (laughs) name I forget now. Dakota. Yes, Dakota. Dakota. Um, including like sweet Dakota. Like I could not be trusted. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't handle being around a dog up to like age 15 in the same room because I couldn't handle you, it. You know? You fully. Yeah. yeah. And so like, you know, we can laugh at that. And back then, like you guys would just like roll your eyes at me. And um, but it it's and it's not that my parents like taught me to fear dogs. But I just, it was a lack of exposure, I think, in a lot of ways to different yeah. aspects of the natural world. And in fact, one of the memories that I shared in my ecological autobiography, because um, I know that, so we, we first started like actually being friends in fifth grade when we were energizers, yeah. but we met before that in Girl Scouts. And I think this was, because I didn't do Girl Scouts very long. So I think this was <laughs> one where we may have even been at your house as brownies in like the first grade, but we made... Uh, we decorated walking sticks and knee pads for like (laughs) going on walks in the woods. Yeah. Yeah, And I remember having this sort of like awareness that the boy scouts are maybe our same age. We're going on camping trips and stuff. And I was just like, Uh, I did not last long in girl scouts. I I have the same complaints about girl scouts. If there are any troops listening, girls can go camping too. Take us camping and give us knives. We want to whittle stuff, you know? And I have to imagine some of that has changed since then. I hope so. Yeah. Hashtag feminism. Yeah, right? Hashtag smash the patriarchy. (laughs) Anyway. I remember bird feeds. Yeah, it all felt very, very cheap. But also, I would like to take some credit for introducing you to the natural world. Uh Pasture parties. Hello. (laughs) Yeah, which there was was a phase uh, in my high school life where I would like – hang out with you guys and do the pasture parties or what we'd call land parties and where I'd hang out with my nerd friends when they would have land parties and it was like oh what are you doing tonight I'm going to a land party wait is that land party or land party because so that's I need you my, to that. <laughs> it's my dual personality but yeah I mean and then a lot of my of course a lot of my um connections with nature in my sort of adolescence are memories with you guys and kind of walking through the streets at night without street lights and getting to actually <laughs> see stars. And it's, yeah, it's just interesting to think about how all of those like early life connections impact our sense of and relationship with the natural world. Definitely. It's, yeah. it's strong. And I mean, you know, I have talked about this a little bit in the past, but 
um, nature deficiency disorder, nature deficient disorder, and how that's becoming such a thing. And it's not like an official diagnosis, but there are those kids who are so connected to electronics and so disconnected from what I call the real world. Um, they're deathly afraid of, of nature in general. Like you just specifically dogs, I kind of get that because, you know, if you've had one dog bite you in your life, right. that's kind of traumatic. Yeah. But this is trauma that, not trauma necessarily, but kids who just panic in nature, they can't handle it. They, can't, they don't want to be in the dirt. They don't want to see everything. It's, it's, it's like, dirty. Yeah, it's, right. It's not just one thing that's a selective uh fear it's it's the whole idea of it it's that you know like fairy tales used to say you know going into the woods at night this is where evil things lurk and where demons are you know you have to stay inside stay you know in the proximity of of artificial light and that's really problematic and i've um just seen it in my time in education the you know kids from the inner city who don't have access and it's not their fault you know they maybe socioeconomically can't afford to go out into beautiful state parks. Um, kids who live in, you know, inner city LA or inner city Houston who are right near the ocean have never seen it, never swum in it because, you know, maybe culturally too, their parents think it's dangerous and you don't, you don't go in the ocean. There are sharks there when, okay, you're actually far more likely to get into a car accident in any city than you are spending hours and hours and hours in the ocean, right? I know people who have spent their entire lives in the ocean. Well, you're a hell of a lot more likely to die by your parent texting on their phone while you're driving through traffic. Amen. So it's, you know, I I do hope, at least in my line of work, our goal is always just introducing people to nature and whatever that looks like for them. If they're a professional scuba diver and they've done a hundred dives and they just want to go out and see a reef at night, cool. We'll take them snorkeling at night and hopefully show them something new and different. But a lot of times we get, um, you know, especially younger folks who are terrified of nature and especially the ocean. It's a big, scary place that's still really unexplored. I mean, we know more about, you know, the cosmos or at least our own solar system than we do about the sea floor and what <laughs> the bottom of the ocean is like. So I, I get why it's scary. And it's um, sad to me that people sometimes don't even want to try it. They would rather just stay connected even when they're on holiday to a device and, you know, take selfies and post those to Instagram rather than actually explore that place in the background of that photo. It's, right. it's wild to me. And it's, it's really distressing in ways because, you know, like you said, that connection with nature and, and having it, even if it's not from an early age, maybe from a later age, mm-hmm. it makes you care and it makes you realize how interconnected we are to those systems and it makes you want to protect it. Otherwise, you just don't give a fuck. Right. And and First. being able to, like, the the evolved sort of version of it is not just caring about the earth for protecting the, conserving the resources for which it can provide us, but right. having a true interconnected relationship and, and honoring that, like, I am a part of it and it is a part of me. So caring about it at that deeper level, but mo- much of our society is like not even there yet. And so the best we can hope for is that people are going to care enough because like, oh, if you don't in 50 years, like your gas is going to cost this and your kids are going to like have to travel to go and view this kind of thing that previously would have been in their own town. Like mm-hmm. it's just whatever the reasons are, like whatever gets people interested, there's always ways to kind of build on that and deepen that. And I can totally understand both sides of it because like I look back at my own path and I'm like, I honestly don't, it's hard for me to piece together 
why I ended up where I am, where I'm studying like eco-psychology and looking at the artificial barriers that have been put in place between nature and psyche and society that frankly, um, capitalism depends on those disconnections being in place. It right. Would, it would crumble if they weren't. And so there are a lot of stakeholders, even if they're not overtly saying this, that are invested in those disconnections staying in place. But so Absolutely. I get it coming from a background of like, even though I remember a world without mobile phones and without the Internet, um, you know, like me and my brother, as soon as we, as soon as we had those things, that was the place I was most likely to be was behind my computer. And, right. and, and in some ways, like, yes, it expanded my my world, it, but in a disembodied way. And I became more of a, a machine than mm -hmm. a an animal. And I am an animal. Right. <laughs> Which is, I think there's a quintessential example of this. And it's it's pretty extreme. But when AOL Instant Messenger became a thing, we were maybe. 14 or 15? Oh, a little younger than that probably, but yeah, around there. So you and I are sitting in your dad's house and there were two computers for God knows why. You had two computers right next to each other and you were on one and I was on the other and we were messaging each other on AIM and yeah. how bizarre that instead of looking at each other and we, I think we did realize, we did it kind of tongue in cheek. At the time we realized how silly it was, of course, but now people are literally now doing norm. Yeah. Just because it's not even funny to them. Like right. to you and I, it was this like irony like, <laughs> where we're right here next to each other and we're doing this and it was such a novel thing to have this instant messenger and now it's insane I'll be sitting with my roommate and find oh my god we're both looking at the same thing on Instagram can we just like have a human connection and have a conversation right now yeah. and we realize that and luckily we're both I think pretty self-aware people and know that you know at what point is this super super unhealthy um, because it doesn't feel good Honestly, I'm still kind of afraid of the ocean. Like, I've come a long way since, like, the trips to Galveston where I could barely get in the water because everything <laughs> yeah. that brushed my leg was, like, definitely a jellyfish, even though it was <laughs> definitely seaweed. Sure. <laughs> um, well, plus, when you put your hand, like, five inches below the surface of the water and you can't see anything, that doesn't help. But This is um, my shameless plug on Puerto Rico then right now because, baby, we have clear waters. And oh, right. I, I would know, love I know. And, and, you know, I've been out, like I went, uh, when you were on Cayman and I did the, the snorkeling, I don't think you'll ever talk me into scuba diving. And honestly, <laughs> like until recently, until a couple of years ago, I, well, I would kind of joke that like, oh, sea creatures are like literal aliens. Like they are so, they're like from another world. And in some cases, in some oh. respects, it's true because they are so different from us, but I would also use that as a justification of like, I don't feel bad eating a fish, whereas I do like genuinely not feel great about eating a cow. And then when I started to learn more about some of the research that's been done in the past like 20 years around like fish and their complex social relationships and all, I was like, shit. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, about it's that. really amazing. <laughs> and I would love, so I, I know we kind of started talking about this before, but like the the importance of coral and like what because we all that's one of those things I feel like we all hear like oh we got to protect the coral reef but uh I feel like a lot of us don't really understand the importance of that and the why so tell us about coral reef for sure so I think you know the ocean in general when you talking about seafood just to go back a little bit is yeah. that is often just out of sight out of mind and we really need to rethink how we eat and I know that 
massive agriculture and mass farming is, is such a negative thing. And so people have fallen back on fish. And frankly, the majority of species out there are incredibly overfished or the methods that we're catching them are super destructive, whether it's longline trawling and you're accidentally catching things like sea turtles and birds, uh, if you're dredging on the seafloor and completely destroying habitat. I mean, all of the ways that in farming, don't get me started with fish farming. Um, well, and, that's and a brief question <laughs> there. Yeah, brief question, because um, I know that when I was still eating fish, and I was at Whole Foods one time and, you know, they've got their whole like rating system of like, how sustainable is this? And they were telling me about like, oh, well, like this one is farmed, but it's like, let me tell you all about the farm. It's like really right. a, a great place. And and a part of me, again, coming not from an educated place where you are, but um, is like, oh, that makes sense to take the supply from there rather than from just the ocean where you're impacting a whole environment and you're mm -hmm. getting all this bycatch of other stuff. So is it better to get like fish from the like wild ocean mm -hmm. as long as you know, they're not like on an endangered list or is it better in certain scenarios to get farmed fish? That is a great question. It depends on the type of fish. In general, I avoid completely anything that is on the kind of upper echelon of, you know, the, the food web. Like any apex predators, and I'm including salmon, tuna, all of these fish that people love to eat in sushi, definitely, I, I mean, I try to avoid it in general just because there are so many toxins that build up because of bioaccumulation. But uh, in those farms, Think about it. If you're trying to grow salmon, right, how many hundreds of salmon are in this farm? You have to feed it something. So they're either feeding it like dog food and then dyeing the skin to make it look pink because when you do that, it actually turns out gray. It's really unhealthy. It doesn't have those same omega-3 fatty acids, you know, that people crave. Um, but a lot of fish farms will actually go out and wild catch the food. So the wild catch uh, sardines and herring and all those smaller fish. And so that's still decimating wild populations. Now you're just decimating the smaller fish. And so what are the wild fish eating? Well, I don't know. And uh, they say by... Sorry for the train. Let's give the train like three deep breaths. I'm watching it pass by. <sighs> Out of doors. Yeah, it's it's funny because <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I actually really find it soothing now, weirdly. And of course I'm sitting outside. So it's louder than if it were, if I were sitting inside my house, it's not loud enough to wake me up at night, which is what I care about. But anyway, back to the little sardines. <laughs> little sardines that are so important. Those are like the base of, of the food web out there in the sea. But, um, yeah, I, I digressed with fish farming. Basically I would point you to the Monterey Bay Aquarium over in Monterey okay. Bay, California, they print and uh, have an app called the Seafood Watch okay. app. And I use it, I used to use it a lot more because I used to eat seafood and now I don't. But um, it's super helpful in determining, they do the science and update it I think every six months. Yeah. And so the app is constantly updating. And the thing about it though is that when you use it, you also have to trust that your server or the chef has the answers to your questions, mm -hmm. which... Uh, they really don't most of the time. I've gone into many sushi restaurants. You were with me once in San Diego when I became <laughs> eco coach. What was right? it that they were serving? It was bluefin tuna. Yeah. And I was, yeah. I was like, you do realize bluefin tuna is endangered. And how are you serving this? And how is it so cheap? And I'm like, maybe it's not really bluefin tuna. So I think, you know, I get on my pedestal and then the no, chef is great. Like, I mean, we, we ate our edamame. We paid for our edamame. And then after you were asking these questions and they 
like couldn't give you a, a good answer, but it was clear they were serving something that, you know, ethically they probably shouldn't have been. And we were like, bye. <laughs> and we and went I had else. <laughs> a cup of seafood watch guy. You, you I literally pulled it out of your purse. <laughs> like <laughs> well, pre-app. <laughs> that was pre-app. I didn't have apps back then. I had a flip phone. So yeah, <laughs> let's talk to the chef. And I think the waiter even said, yeah, we've been, you're not the first person who's called us out on this. And that yeah. to me was a kindling of hope. I was like, oh, good. I'm not the only crazy person here yelling about endangered fish, you know? Yeah, like, I no- mean, and that was like seven years ago. So hopefully there yeah. are more people that are making noise about that. It's I so think we shut too. that down like, there, Sidebar, bleeding heart vegan over here is like, when I realize, like, oh, fuck, we call it seafood. Now I call them marine animals. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so coral so what the, Yeah, that's a great question. Um Coral reefs, even if you've never been to one or traveled to one, it, you know, obviously they are a tourism destination and they are uh, beautiful. Even people who don't know what they're looking at are spending their dollars in small islands and countries all throughout the tropics where a lot of those economies depend on tourism. So if you lose the reefs, you're losing majority of the reason people go. So you're, you're harming their economy. That's step one. Step two is that, you're like we said earlier, there are a lot of people on Earth whose livelihoods depend on fish, on having abundant catches of fish. And anywhere you go in the world, I guarantee you go speak with an old fisherman, or even a middle-aged fisherman, and they can tell you that decades ago, the biggest catch was this big. And then now they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Fishermen are having to go further and further and further offshore. And I'm talking about those with, you know, a rod and reel or their small net. These are subsistence fishermen trying to compete with commercial fishing. They have nets the size of like 747s. Or the hangar that uh, you know 747 goes inside of. So yeah. there's really no contest for these poor, um, you know, people who live all over the world that are just trying to make a buck selling a little fish on the market, right? So um, if your heart doesn't go out to them, okay. But from an ecosystem perspective, coral reefs are fascinating because they're only covering about one percent of the oceans, probably less than that now, especially with the dying off, which we can get to. Um, but they hold up to 25% of marine species. This is incredible. Such a small area has such diversity. You see more different phylums of species. And when you phylum, you know, when you look at like, we're in the phylum chordata because we have a backbone. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have the phylum, you know, periphera, which is sponges. Um, You have more phylums on coral reefs than you have in a tropical rainforest. And many people think of the rainforest as the most, you know, vibrant and abundant uh, ecosystem we have. No, it's the the rainforest of the ocean. Exactly. You took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> but what is it? What is coral? Is it a plant? Is it an animal? Is it a mineral? Ooh, ooh, ooh it's all of the above? <gasps> Boom! Yay! It's like, I'm... <laughs> it's it's like I answered this question before. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It's all three because you have a coral polyp, which are these little anemone-type creatures that settle on beautiful islands like Puerto Rico. Um, they need a nice clear substrate or like rocky surface to attach to. So volcanic and these islands are perfect for them. Um, and they, they grow in multiple ways. They can reproduce asexually by just budding. They basically clone themselves. And so when you see one little head of what looks like just a colorful rock, it's actually a bunch of clones, right? And they're just tiny little upside down jellyfish stuck to the rock. Okay. And then once a year, they can also reproduce sexually. So they'll, some of them are hermaphrodites. Some of them are not like, this is the Exactly. Let's get it on. The cool things about corals are that, I mean, they're just fascinating. You have some that are Hermes, some hermaphrodites, some that are not. 
and they can produce gametes and they meet up in the water column and the little larvae drift around and then settle somewhere on another nice clean substrate. So what happens? On that little rocky area, you see one little bud, one little coral. I'm just imagining in my head like <laughs> I'm doing with my hands, little anemones. Um, and they start to spread out over an area and they're going to grow in different shapes and different forms. So you see some that look like brains, some that are shaped like lettuce, some that actually sway and have a more protein-based skeleton. Um, they're all trying to get sunlight. So you're probably thinking, okay, that's weird because why does an animal need sunlight? Like, yeah, we all need vitamin D, but corals actually have a symbiotic relationship. So they have a special relationship with a dinoflagellate called zooxanthellae. So I'm, from now on, just going to say algae because it's much easier. <laughs> but What was the name? Zooxanthellae? Zooxanthellae. Yeah. Okay, cool. They're these little one-celled organisms that live in the coral's flesh. So they just stick themselves to the coral's um, little jelly-like body and they photosynthesize. So they're taking in sunlight and they're creating sugars and they feed themselves that way. The coral is also able to feed because it is an animal and they are little carnivores. So they need plankton and nom, nom, other nom, nutrients. Nom. They're basically eating all day long because corals at night use their tentacles to feed, just like jellyfish or anemones. They pull in plankton from the water. Uh, during the day, they're basically sunbathing. They have these zooxanthellae, algae, doing all the work for them. So both animals benefit, right? The coral has a second, and actually the primary um, food source for coral is those zooxanthellae. If they didn't have these little creatures living in their flesh, they would die because they tend to live in warm water, right? The tropics are warm, and warm water doesn't have a lot of nutrients. So they can't survive just on feeding on plankton at night. They really do need that algae living in their flesh in order to survive. Symbiosis. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> so what happens? They actually secrete... This is what is different uh, than jellyfish and their cousins, the anemones, is that corals actually secrete a skeleton underneath them, which is limestone. It's calcium carbonate. So when you see these bits of coral, you know, you're on a tropical island washing up on the beach, it looks white, just like our bones are white. They've produced that skeleton underneath themselves. So whether they look like deer antlers or whether they look like a big boulder, whether they look like crazy pillars, um, their goal is ultimately to just get to the sunlight so that they can get that nutrient that they need in the form of photosynthesis. So they grow and they grow and they grow. And eventually you get this city underwater, right? So corals are like these architects that are building all these crazy shaped structures and they're not the only ones. Because they formed this reef, this little city, all these other animals, the fish that eat the corals and then the algae that grows on the other you know, dead skeleton that the coral leaves behind is creating food for some. You have this really diverse and really intricately woven uh, city with different creatures that all have a different role. Mm. So if you were to take out the coral out of this ecosystem, it would leave nothing behind. It'd be like having a city with no buildings, no houses, nothing. Um, and these corals grow. I mean, you can see the Great Barrier Reef from space, right? The smallest little so creatures. Insane. It's amazing. Like one little polyp is the size of, you know, it's a few millimeters across. But they form these huge bombies and coral heads and eventually reefs that are visible from space. So it's an incredibly productive system in water that's really nutrient depleted. And they're really, really successful. Why? Let's compare them to our cities. They recycle nutrients. All right, so any plankton that does happen to drift by, the coral can connect and collect at night because they're uh, nocturnal. But during the day, they're sunbathing. So imagine if our cities had just solar panels on everything. I look at Puerto Rico. I'm like, we get so much sunlight throughout the year. You were capitalizing and on that. Why are we not? Why are we not putting solar panels on absolutely 
every rooftop in every parking lot. Like it's absurd to me. So the corals uh, have their fucking solar panels on. So corals have their solar. They've got their shit together. All right. Yeah. Uh, when something poops, when something dies, when anything goes gets weird on the reef and decides to stop at the bottom, what happens? Somebody eats it, right? Just like in a forest, you have your mushrooms and you have your ants and all your little detritivores. You have those on the reef. Only they're really fucking weird. You have like sea cucumbers that look totally crazy. Um, you have all all the bacteria, obviously, that you don't see. All the lobsters, which people love to eat lobster. And I, lobsters are basically just eating all the filth that goes down to the bottom. So remember that. Next time you're enjoying, I'm going to ruin lobster for people. Like the lobsters are like the people who come and pick up your trash every week. Do you really want to kill all those people? Who the fuck exactly. is going to pick up your trash? <laughs> Boom. So they clean up the reef. They're recycling those nutrients. They're going back into the system. It's awesome. Um, and then you have, like we said before, just so much diversity. You know, a city that we're just full of like, computer engineers would not function because there would be no one to feed them. A city that only had teachers would be great, but you know, there would be no garbage collectors. So a coral reef, just to draw the comparison, has every little niche, every, you know, role that you need. And, uh, and a lot of weirdos, you know, you have these, just like you said, things that you can't even imagine, you know, like Nautilus and oh my God, just the little brittle sea stars. Like see a child holding one of those for the first time and we take them snorkeling. They're just, like, wow, this feels so weird. This is so crazy. You know, you just don't see a lot of these things on land. And um, and these are the things that are, like, on on the posters at Hobby Lobby that we're putting yeah. up in our houses, but we've never actually <laughs> considered it as a live being, right? Totally. And when you remove one of those things from the system, it, it fails. Or when you raise the temperature of the sea just one degree, guess what? That zooxanthellae can no longer thrive, and so it is ejected from the coral. And that's when you get a bleaching event. Uh, usually they happen because of temperature when the sea is just too warm. It can happen when it's too cold, but, you know, historically, at least in recent years, it's been because of the warming sea temperature. Um, you get bleaching events. So the coral just kind of goes white because it's actually that algae that gives it its color. Coral is just like the color of, you know, a jellyfish. It's kind of translucent. Um, so all those beautiful purples and greens and blues and oranges and browns that you see are actually the, the algae. When that gets ejected because of these environmental stressors, the coral is essentially starving. And if the sea temperature goes back down, or say it was a, a chemical stressor, you know, if that goes away, um, the coral can survive if that zooxanthellae decides to come back. If not, it will die, and you'll just see a rocky reef for a few weeks, and then eventually big algae starts to settle. And that's what I'm seeing a lot of around the Caribbean. And uh, when I was in French Polynesia as well, you see these massive bleaching events that the coral is not able to rebound from. It doesn't, you know, we have all these other stressors. We have boat anchors dropping anchor. We have people wearing sunscreen into the water, which is super toxic for corals. You have- Some sunscreens are better than others, right? Right, mineral-based, like zinc oxide is much better, or just frankly wearing a rash vest, like okay. wearing a sh yeah. cover your skin. It's better for you anyway, right? It's gonna protect you much better than sunscreen can. Um, and then just carbon dioxide, like the amount of greenhouse gases that we have that are being sequestered in the ocean. You know, the ocean is just like our dumping ground right now. It's right. taking in all of the waste that we put into the atmosphere, all the carbon dioxide going into the ocean. And it's really taking the brunt of all that. Um, and then I don't even get me started on like plastics and everything, but, um, we've just used the ocean as a garbage dump thinking like, oh, it's so big. It can take it. Right. There it's are so places deep. like we won't even see the trash. <laughs> It's oh, incredible. Our Jean-Michel Cousteau, so he's the one who founded the program I work for, his son Fabian recently went scuba diving along with um, 
Richard Branson into one of those uh, beautiful blue abysses like near Belize, um, like those sinkholes, right? Those big craters. And so it's I think called a cenote. They go into the bottom of one thinking like, wow, this is so cool. It's untouched by humans. It's undiscovered, uncharted territory. How exciting. Let's get in a submersible and just see what we see. What's the first thing that they saw? A plastic fucking water bottle. Oh, wow. It just breaks my heart that humans have touched these parts of the seas that we don't even know exist. And yet our footprint is there. And it's not a good footprint because when, you know, plastic breaks down, it just becomes more and more toxic. It, little fish will eat those little bits that break down. And the bigger fish will eat those fish, and then we end up eating those fish. And by the time it's gotten to our level, you have all kinds of toxins, you know, mercury, which is a neurotoxin. Um, all of this is building up in that flesh, and we're consuming it as well. And so even if people don't believe in the intrinsic value of a reef in and of itself, if they're never going to visit Hawaii or they're never going to visit, you know, the Caribbean, that's fine. They need to consider at least that we are so dependent on the oceans, and, and not just for food. But for climate regulation, I mean, the whole reason that you have Bordeaux wine being produced in Bordeaux, you know, is because of the Gulf Stream, is because of the way the, the Atlantic currents work. Yeah. And those currents only function when the sea is at a certain temperature. You know, the storms that we're getting, Hurricane Maria, which devastated the island I live on two years ago, you know, these storms are getting more and more frequent, more and more um, intense. And this is only increasing. And it, it astounds me. I know I'm preaching to the choir probably with your audience, but it's astounding to me that you, you still have such a platform for people who are going to deny this. Mm -hmm. And so many people listening to those people right. instead of listening to science. And it really breaks my heart. Um, coral reefs are extremely important. They are just like the ocean is like a big lung. You know, for every four breaths that you take, Two of those breaths came from the ocean. The oxygen was produced by algae in the ocean. We have nothing but gratitude to give to the sea, and we've done nothing but trash it. Yeah. Since well, that's and, and, and it's insane to me. Right. And, like, remembering as far as, like, the interconnectedness of everything, like, say you are in a landlocked state, and you're like, I don't fucking, like, I don't think about the ocean. It's just not part of my consciousness. Like you said, mm -hmm. there's there's other ways in which the ocean is actually playing a big role in your life as a human animal. And Absolutely. also like, I can't remember what, what percent of the, of the earth uh, surface area is water, but a huge percent. And what percent of our bodies is water? At least 60%. It's the and, same as like 71%. Yeah, yeah. And you look at like, even as something as a simple example, I'm looking up at the moon right now, which is like a beautiful little, it's like the little uh, fingernail crescent moon. Yeah. Um, oh, and the stars are so beautiful right now too. But the, how the ocean's tides respond to the moon mm. and our bodies respond the same way. Like hospital mm -hmm. admissions are up on, when there are full moons because mm -hmm. The moon fucking does things to us, right? Yeah. Because we are a lot of water, just like the ocean. I don't know what you're so, about. so our interconnectedness and thinking of like water, what um, this trainer at the uh, for the eco psychology thing, Andy Fisher, he calls it like watershed consciousness. Consciousness. Mm. So the idea of like you know he, he who's pointing to this little stream behind us, and this is like a couple hours from um, Ottawa in on in Ontario, Canada. And he's like, oh, this little stream that floods in, it flows into this uh, lake, which floods into this lake, which floods into this lake, which floods into, like, th that ultimately 
no matter where you are, you're impacted by the oceans. Absolutely. Um, and it's just incredible. I mean, and then God, there's Detroit, who's now been without clean water for five years, is it? Like, yeah. th- that supposedly was, oh, yeah, it's, it's totally fine now. And it's fucking not um, mm-hmm. because of what we're doing. So anyway, that tangent aside, um, what's Mission Blue? So Mission Blue is uh, Sylvia Earle, who is like one of my heroes, uh, heroines. She, first of all, it is a documentary. So if you haven't seen it, it is on Netflix. And I, I highly recommend it um, because her story is just enchanting. She's an incredible woman who has used humor to get through uh, so much of her life in a male-dominated industry, in science and marine biology in particular. And um, her current mission is to protect a certain portion, I think it's like 20% of the oceans um, in marine protected areas by a certain date. And I wish I knew exactly the percentage and exactly the well, year. We'll which is a proposed. link to it in the show notes and people can check Beautiful. it out. Um, and she's, yeah, just been uh, an inspiration to me because she's just kind of like, doesn't take any shits from anybody. And uh, when people told her, you know, like, well, this is you know, something, a career that only really men follow. It's like, she didn't even hear them. She just charged through and did it anyway. And was like on a boat with 70 men going into the Indian ocean and the only woman. And you know, like the things, the articles and the headlines that come out of that, she just laughed at. She was like, what am I going to take them seriously? Like they're writing rubbish about me. So, you know, um, she's really, really an amazing scientist and has worked a lot alongside with, um, Jean-Michel Cousteau, who started the program that I work for. Um, Ocean Future Society. So it's a nonprofit that is also committed to um, conserving the oceans. And he's actually currently in Russia because there was a beluga and orca whale like prison. I mean, they had basically, yeah, captured all of these beautiful animals and were, I think, going to sell them to China to be in like SeaWorld type aquariums, right? So, but luckily he he did go and spoke with a few diplomats and other. Um, scientists and people from other nonprofits, and they came together and signed a resolution that said, no, no, we're going to re-release them into the wild, which I think because they haven't been in captivity that long, um, shouldn't be a process like it was with with Keiko, you know, Free Willy. That was like a big deal because he was in captivity his whole life Mm. and like really accustomed to being around humans. So I think this one hopefully won't be as um, just logistically challenging, but we'll see. Um, But at least it's a step in the right direction. It's saying, look, these creatures... We don't interact with them every day. Most people, you know, like you said, you're landlocked. You don't see the ocean every day. And even if you do, a lot of people who live near the ocean don't even know how to swim, Mm -hmm. right? And they don't feel that connectedness to it. And it's really high time that we realize absolutely how, I mean, it's like a no-brainer to me. The fact that there's going to be more plastic than plankton in the ocean in the year 2050 is insane. Even if you don't eat fish or seafood, it literally regulates our temperature it gives us the oxygen that we breathe we rely on it 100 percent like this is a water planet it's blue you know and that's uh i think one of the important things to to bring up here too is so coming from the psychology and human behavior side of things i think we are so averse to experiencing painful emotions what we might call quote negative emotions like Mm -hmm. fear so if we don't want to experience the fear of like where our planet is really going then we can just minimize the problem and we can stay in denial and we can 
deny, you know, climate change and like whatever the fuck else. Um, so if we yeah. want to avoid fear, we can avoid fear and those means. If we want to avoid shame, we can just like point to, well, everyone else in front of me at Target was using plastic bags. So like, mm-hmm. but here's the thing that I want to really print, like highlight is I've been there and you've been there and we have all been there. Those of us who are even like aware and conscientious and care about these issues, we've all fucking gone to the grocery store and been like, God damn it. I left my bags at home. I feel Mm -hmm. so bad that I'm going to have to use the plastic bags and whatever else. Or like, ugh, I don't, I'm on a road trip and my water that I filled up is gone and whatever right like we've all been there where we have bought the plastic water bottle or the plastic coke bottle or the plastic grocery bags and and i think that rather than having an all or nothing thinking about that and just being like oh well this is life yeah just to know that we can we can always we can yes we can give ourselves grace and self-compassion and Mm -hmm. we can plan to do better next time Right. Right. This doesn't have to be like, I don't want to have to feel bad for my fuck ups and my imperfections. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to like turn off caring, like leave the caring on and just realize that you're not always going to do perfect. And that's okay. And you can always learn from your experiences and do better next time. Definitely. And for me, you know, it's those little things, they happen. Right. Um, But we need to really, things need to revolutionize because we're at a breaking point that is, there's really going to be no turning back. And like, honestly, to protect future generations, not only of humans, but of all the species that we're already driving to extinction, um, we really need revolutionary change. And like, the fact is that we rely on plastic water bottles as a society, even if I choose not to, like, how can we really just, you know, like here in in Puerto Rico, you have a group of of mostly women, it's a lot of women, who are reworking land in a way, they've started this actually before the hurricane, um, an amazing effort to really kind of revolutionize farming. It's funny that like on earth, most people used to farm, like agriculture, if you weren't a hunter-gatherer, was how we created civilization. And now all of a sudden it's become this fad. It's like, oh, wow, farming is like making a comeback. Yeah, right. Just so ironic, that's the revolution. It's like, really, that used to be just like the status quo. But it's called the Puerto Rico Resilience Fund. And it's an effort to rebuild our island's farms, which were decimated after the hurricane, and which honestly, since colonialization by the Spanish, you know, they've kind of industrialized, colonized farming. So you didn't have these small little things. You had big sugarcane plantations and big coffee. And it was all, you know, corporations. It wasn't individuals. And like, thank God, I'm seeing this resurgence. It's like renaissance of um, people who are like, no, yeah, and young people who want to work the land, sell them in markets here locally and stop relying on imports. And that's huge because not only are we focusing on, you know, organic and you know, like biodynamic, sustainable farming, it's also supporting local economies, which is one of the the things that most people, no matter where you live, and even though we have our fuck-ups and sometimes we leave our lights on or we, um, you know, maybe don't have the most fuel-efficient car, like, hopefully all those things are changing. I would hope that everyone who does listen to this podcast is kind of, like, in this realm of we're all sort of in the same place with that. Um, But, like, also, like you're saying, those things have to, like, yeah, we are accountable and responsible for our individual choices and our lifestyle choices. Mm -hmm. And, for instance, like, even if the majority of my motivation for having a vegan lifestyle is for the individual animal beings, like the more and more connected I get to ecological consciousness, 
like and can think of the mountains and the rivers and the topsoil and things like that as beings like me, even if they're not, you know, like, yes, I'm going to fucking eat carrots. And do I feel mm. guilty about it? No, I don't. <laughs> like, people who what are going to use that as an argument of like, well, just yeah, but plants have feelings too. It's like, okay, well, I fucking have to eat. So I'm just going to minimize yeah. the amount of suffering that I do. Um, totally. But anyway, so fuck, where was I going with this after before that tangent? You were just saying... I was just discussing, discussing like locavore diets and just like eating as locally and as plant based of a oh, diet yeah. as possible, like as just a simple solution. You know, yeah, everybody yeah. loves to eat. How can we do it in a way that also impacts, you know, our atmosphere, our oceans, right. our land where we live, and our local economy? Yeah. Fuck big worms, you and know? There's these trends, right? Like you're saying, of like, oh, it's like trendy now to like, oh, I get organic or I get local. Right? And. And that's I love great. like trend. yes, please <laughs> like, like awesome. let it be a trend. That's awesome. Like, it like whatever your reason is please. for doing it, whatever your doorway into it is, like take that doorway. It's great, but we also want to stay with it, even if its moment of trendiness passes. And hopefully, it won't because right. it is just being raised more into our consciousness, hmm. and we're making more connections. But um, I feel like this is a good point to kind of ask you about, like with the theme this month around consistency and like I just shared about that we're all going to have these times where we're not as consistent as we like to be in our Mm -hmm. behaviors that are honoring the earth and being a good stewardship of the earth, a steward of the earth and the oceans. Um, Mm. But what are some ideas that you have or recommendations that you have around being a more consistently good steward of the planet? Awesome question. Hard one. Because um, I, I feel like I've touched on so many issues. Well, yeah, and it's you like, can always just my- kind of summarize them and like bring them back here. Yeah. I Basically, you know, the old adage like reduce, reuse, recycle. Okay. Obviously, reduce is the has always been the first one and the most important. Um, but I think another one that uh, was told to me like in the last, I don't know, just working in environmentalism is rethink. Like really rethink what our priorities are and what we need. You know, it's like we can reduce the amount of, you know, plastic that we use, but what about just fucking rethinking it all together? Like yeah, that's the political level too. Like it can't just be up to exactly. us individual consumers. We've got, they've got to be making products that we can purchase that are different from what we're able to purchase now. Right. Now I have metal straws and you have paper straws and you have all, or what about just no straws, you know? And like, it's to me, I've had to get into this habit of saying, you know, sin sorbeto when I order any kind of cocktail or drink anywhere without a straw, please, because it's Sidebar, just so... if you need a straw for accessibility reasons, you, like, people, places should offer paper straws. Oh, of course. Right. For yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm not an ableist. Come on, right. Belle. But, uh, no, I, I think we just need to rethink those needs, you know, before, do you really need the latest iPhone or is the one that you have right now working just fine? Like, really, what, how is that going to impact your day? Rethinking what your children need or even how many kids you have, you know, I'm not gonna ever throw shade on anybody for how many children they choose to have but really thinking about it really thinking before you have another because each of child especially in our society is another consumer and they will be consuming for the rest of their lives reducing our consumerism in whatever way that makes sense and with where you're at in your life right i mean i walk into an ikea and it's like overwhelming to me because i'm just like look at all of these resources all of these materials they come from somewhere. And I feel like this before, so for me, like that consumerism, like buying things that are used before new totally. and 
but even before that, it's just rethinking like what it is that we really, really need and needs versus like wants and desires and where we're really at with that. Um, and this doesn't mean that you have to live an aesthetic lifestyle and like be a minimalist yeah. in every sense of the word. Like there are ways of reducing your consumption and like, like you're saying, going to secondhand stores and like I'm, pre I'm preaching to myself right now too because I don't always do that and I definitely have more opportunities where I could do that. But I have mm -hmm. also you know, sort of tried to have more of a minimalist mindset and love the idea of when we're thinking about what we want to purchase of really focusing on experiences, not things in terms of like what's going to bring us joy or whatever. Um, so yeah, well, so reduce our well. unnecessary, like question our consumption primarily. Yes. And then, you know, when you do consume, consume locally. You know, really focusing on the small businesses, the, you know, female-owned businesses and the minority-owned businesses, those people that need... Uh, feminism. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, and when it is food that we're consuming, like, what are we consuming? I know you're vegan. I'm, like, pretty vegetarian. <laughs> I say that with a grain of salt. But uh, it's hard on this island. <laughs> you're, you're at least making efforts to yeah. minimize... Not about being, yeah. but yeah, the place where seafood is like very prevalent. Um, my awareness of if I'm going to eat seafood, I want it to be like a lionfish, which is invasive in the Caribbean or something that I know is abundant. And again, I can go to my seafood watch app and look at it. And hopefully I have a, a server or a restaurant or a fisherman who knows, you know, where their product is coming from. So it's really just that awareness of like, what am I buying if I do need it? And where is it coming from? Yeah. Who am I supporting when I purchase this? And I do know that I'm coming from a place of privilege that I get to choose that. I do realize that there are food deserts sure. and that a lot of people don't have the access or the time um, to make these choices. Like you said, it takes extra time to find vegan clothing and mm -hmm. uh, things like that. So maybe going to a second-hand store isn't easy for you because you're probably not going to find something that really falls within what you choose to do. And that's what it's about is choosing what is possible for you right. and like doing your absolute best at it. But then societally, we do need... A fucking revolution like yeah. things change on a very fundamental level yeah. and that goes I, to like one of the things we talked about before of like that there are these holding actions of like yes when you can recycle when you can like buy something that's compostable or whatever like those are important actions mm -hmm. and we need a systemic like foundational change Right, yeah. which I mean, I hate to be preachy about it or like political, but those things, you know, if we don't like raise up and like have our own, I don't know, rebellion against our own government, we have to change the people who are in power. Like that absolutely has to happen because I mean, even things like I talk to people about recycling and they're like, oh yeah, but I recycle everything. It's like, you don't though, you think you do, but plastic is not even being accepted by China anymore. So these systems that we have in place that we think are, oh, just a total solution are not at all. They're not even a band-aid to it. They're actually causing more problems because people's mindset is, I recycle, so it's cool. It's actually not cool. You are I mean, that's what I used to think, to be totally honest, I know. you know? So I think that that's like, yeah, if you don't know Same. about like what recycling really is and that, yes, when it comes to recycling versus just throwing in the landfill, it, try to recycle. But, right. but that if there's other options before that to just not buy the Ziploc like literally I'm in the, in Target yesterday because I think there have been some scenarios recently at home where I've been like damn it I wish we had more um, Ziploc sandwich size bags for mm -hmm. I can't even think of like reasons why I would want to use specifically that versus like a little Tupperware 
And so I literally spent like seven minutes in the aisle going, am I going to buy these? And then I found these like paper ones that they're make, they're selling now even at Target that are like cool. little paper bags that like fold over and have a little cute sticker for you to put on there. And I was like, would this work? Like, is this like when I'm, I couldn't remember any of the times recently that I had wanted a Ziploc bag. And so I'm thinking like, well, I could put a sandwich in here, but I can put a sandwich in Tupperware too. So this is all was going through my head. And then eventually I just fucking walk out of the aisle and I'm like, probably my Tupperwares are just going to be fine. <laughs> Don't. And it's all these little micro things of like, I had to literally to step by step question <laughs> yeah. the assumption that I am out of Ziploc sandwich bags and clearly I need more. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you for having that internal. <laughs> like, you know, for me also carbon emissions, I know we've mentioned food, we've mentioned just like products and consumption, but carbon emissions, you know, it's like, how much do you need that trip to Europe? Could you Ooh, instead fly? I, I actually am too. And that's why I'm having a <laughs> struggle. I'm like, shit, what if instead I like stay on this gorgeous island where I am and export locally instead of like flying, you know, airlines are I'm one of you the mentioned this one though, because I know this is one that like, in in more like environmentalist circles is probably more well known but for people like me who like haven't historically been traveling in those circles uh, I know things like recycle reduce like get a hybrid car like these things but I wouldn't necessarily think about about the impact of travel because it's like one of these things that like oh people just do it and in fact there's almost this like mentality in my mind how I have seen it historically over the years until recently is like oh people who are worldly people who love adventure and like knowledge and culture and want to see the world and expand their worldview those people travel a lot all over the world and so when I started to realize like yes there's a beautiful thing about seeing other cultures firsthand but actually coming from an ecological standpoint like I don't need to visit all those places personally I can choose I can be selective and Mm -hmm. and like maybe that's actually doing the planet a favor to not feel like I have to go to every single one of these places like that was a revolutionary idea to me yeah yeah or take a sailboat you know (laughs) good point good point (laughs) it just airplanes are crazy if you if you have to fly go direct as direct as possible right because all those stopovers, it's just like the amount of fossil fuels that we burn just for, you know, simple things are like if you can, you know, plan it so that you are traveling and doing all of your errands in one go and making, yeah. you know, these little things that we just don't think like, oh, I forgot this. I guess I'll drive over there. If you were biking that, would you have forgotten? You know what I mean? Like, oh, and, and here's it, another like simple one that like sounds so fucking privileged. Um I uh, might be a little ashamed of this, but I will own that I am an Amazon Prime frequent user. Oh, yeah. Um, now, there are times that I have challenged myself to go, is that a book that my local bookstore would sell? Yes. Mm. I will buy it from them. I will pay more. And I do have the privilege to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, but at times that I've purchased from Amazon and just like, I'm like, oh, good. I can get it here in two days. Da, da, da. But we noticed mm-hmm. recently and, and there's other benefits of being a prime member like the, you know, TV and stuff like that. Like we might we'll probably keep it. Um, but we noticed the other day that they have this like, oh, select your prime day and like we'll bundle any of your sh- 
like shipments that you're getting for the week into this one shipment that will come to you like on Wednesdays or whatever your day is. So like that's a tip for people who because I know many, many of us here in the States are Amazon Prime members and we take advantage of this two day thing. Um, but what would it be like for you to just know that anything I order from Amazon will come here on Wednesdays or whatever day you choose? And that would actually make a little bit of a difference. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not about being perfect, but just take, making those, you know, little changes is like, is that so hard? You know, if we're not going to start a revolution, you know, I'm not asking people to go move to an eco village and be barefoot, but you know, maybe we will. But maybe we will. <laughs> Seriously considering it. And if you're not going to at least support them, you know, like you have yeah. the one here locally in um, Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico Resilience Fund, or just World Wildlife Fund, Center for Biological Diversity, these groups and organizations that are doing really important work. Um, and then, of course, like supporting them. If you do have access to farmer's markets, like using those, talking to yeah. people about how they grow things. And, um, you know, when you can, like eating and shopping and purchasing as locally as possible and just... Mm -hmm you know, really, if we're not doing all those little things, like turning off the water and turning off the lights, like we're, we're, we're fucked. Like, right. come on, well, let's do better. Like very like realistic. You can do this right now. Kind of example. When you were just saying that about like world wildlife fund and stuff, I was picturing like, um, okay. So, and I've heard this before with like ordering from Amazon too. So like, let's say if you're going to make an order from Amazon or you're going to go to Walmart or you're going to, um, schedule a flight. Can you send an extra 20 bucks to the World Wildlife Fund or sure, whatever exactly. your charity water or whatever, like your organization sure. of choice is like, not that it, it's not like a, this negates this kind of thing. Like that's, it's way too complex for that. But if you're going to like make an extra impact, can you give a little bit extra of your money or time to an organization who's supporting your values? Totally. Or when you travel, um, you know, instead of staying at a resort or, you know, God forbid, like taking a cruise ship. And I worked on a cruise ship and I currently <laughs> work at a resort. So I see a massive grain of salt. I'm trying to like change things from the inside. Right. 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 But I'm totally corporate. Um, when you go to these places, you know, you're traveling for business or you're traveling for pleasure, whatever it is, supporting the local economy where you are and take the local Uber or taking the local cabs or whatever they have. If it's a little, you know, little tiny bus, you know, wherever you are going is really experiencing that because I, I feel like people have this fear of other countries. Like, oh, oh, I have to stay on like the American part of whatever or like the more, you know, upscale. It's like I have right. traveled and hitchhiked and I'm fine and I don't make great life decisions. So if I'm still alive, <laughs> like, trust me, it's going to be uh, fine. So, well, and you're saying that like, oh, I work in a resort, but I'm trying to change things from the inside. Um it reminded me of a phrase that when I, when this weekend, this past weekend, when um, Andy Fisher was kind of presenting this whole framework and like the, here's the problem and like, here's where we can start to move toward. And, mm. and I, you know, I, even though I knew this is sort of like an elementary question, I was just like, okay, so I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm hearing that like the system is fundamentally flawed, like that ultimately mm. we're sort of a prisoner to the system if we stay within it. Um, but that's not going to change anytime soon. Like capitalism isn't going anywhere anytime soon right. in the United States. And so like, what the fuck do we do in the meantime? And yeah. other than these like simple actions that we're talking about right now mm. and, and the just, I don't, he, he did not coin this phrase, but the phrase that he mentioned was like in and against that we've, mm. we've got to just start where we're at and you can yeah. be in the system 
and yeah. against the system at the same time and like taking these actions and like building a larger voice and narrative and education around all of it. Yeah. And I, you know, working at a resort and doing what I do, which is ecotourism seems completely juxtaposed, right? Uh, we hand out these little plastic water bottles to our guests instead of having a system where we have, you know, refilling stations everywhere and giving people a really cool reusable water bottle, like this sweet one I have, uh, like, like Corksicle or Hydroflask or whatever. Um, so I'm putting together a proposal now, and I don't know if it's going to fall on deaf ears, but what I do know is that these high-end guests that we have, we're paying uh, 1000 to $15,000 a night, and I'm not joking about that. Yeah. That's the They want to see water filtration systems. They yeah. want plastic. That's what they're demanding. So I do have hope yes. because people who are traveling and people who are spending money and people in general are looking for more sustainable options, but they need to be provided it, right? And so my goal is, it's like in and against, like I, I fully support, um, you know, I'm not, if I leave today, this hotel chain will continue growing. I know that it is, there are many hotels in the pipeline and I want to be a part of their openings so that someone like me doesn't have to fight against the plastic water bottle thing already being in place. Yeah. They can open a hotel the right way and have already filtration systems and have already an amazing composting area in each kitchen, you know, instead of having so much food waste, you know, or having already options for guests to do really cool um, give back initiatives. You know, like so many people who have traveled to Puerto Rico recently are like, how do I volunteer? Where can I volunteer my time or my clothing or my donations? They want that, right? And that to me is inspiring and it gives me hope um, because at the end of the day, you know, I touch a few people in doing our eco tours and being able to show them the ocean, but not everybody wants to go snorkeling. Not everybody wants to go kayaking. Not everybody is able to go bike riding in the heat and really connect with nature. So I want to at least provide, you know, a luxury environment that includes all of those things. To, to me, luxury is being in part of nature and being a part of it. And that's more and more what like people traveling and people in general want. And yeah, yeah so mm, I it, takes, it takes change. It takes people really wanting to make little changes or big changes and, and being willing to like hear those those little things and say if we create this people mm -hmm. will like it right yeah um okay so what is the fucking point of any <laughs> of this I knew it would come to this the fucking point for me is we have this beautiful planet and if we I mean, first, obviously, we have to take care of each other. And to me, the, the human connection that I have every day with guests and with people that I work with and with people on this island that I fucking adore is um, the biggest thing. It's like we have to care about each other. And in caring about each other, we need to think about what we're doing to our planet, how will it affect us? Because people like you and me, we already care about the planet. We already like nerd out on moss and reefs and we love it. But this planet won't be livable for us. That's the way that it's going unless we make changes and whether it's at a small everyday level and you mix that in with an institutional level and all these different levels we just have to do something and be forgiving of ourselves and of others because I can't keep pointing fingers of blame I can't feel bad when I make a mistake like you said earlier and consistency 100% is impossible yeah. but we can consistently give our best effort on all of these levels and just be consciously mindful of what we're consuming, how we're consuming, how that's treating the people around us, how it affects, 
animals, the other people we share this planet with. And in doing that, we're going to inevitably make a better planet. Mm-hmm. And to me, the fucking point is how do we make it so that we, we as humans can enjoy it? Because if we in, as humans are able to survive on it and not crazy change the climate and the temperature, if we're able to make those changes that need to happen for that, I mean, change is inevitable. But in order to make this place an inhabitable place for everybody, That's the fucking point. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. a fucking man. Um, I hope I had some ideas for people. Thank you. Use your Okay, that's when we say fake goodbye. And oh my God, let me just also end with saying we've had an admirer this whole time with Blue standing at the door watching me. Blue? My little cat, Blue. Oh my God, he's so cute. Anyway. Thank you so much for being here. Is there anywhere that you want to point people online to find you or the things you're passionate about? Uh, our uh, organization is called Ocean Futures Society. So oceanfutures.org. And it is Jean-Michel Cousteau's um, nonprofit dedicated to ocean conservation. And we do filmmaking and we do eco-tours and education and uh, diplomacy like he's doing now. So if you want to check that out, donate to the nonprofit or just see what the team is doing. That's a great place to start and come visit me. Awesome. On a sailboat. Thank you, Miss Baraski. <laughs> Love you, girl. <laughs> I so hope you enjoyed this episode and I kind of think you're a badass for listening all the way to the end. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can find show notes for this episode at shinebrightwith.me slash podcast. Any links mentioned, resources, more info about the guests, etc. you can find right over there. Also, I'd love to know what you're enjoying about the podcast, any feedback you have, and what you want more of. Follow me on Instagram at Val K. Martin. That's B-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. Take a screenshot of you listening, tag me in it, send me a DM, whatever. I would love to connect with you. Also, if you want mega karma bonus points, leave a review and rating on iTunes. It helps more people find the show and it makes me so happy. The link is bit.ly slash WTFP review, all lowercase bit.ly slash WTFP review. I'll see you next time. And until then... Keep asking the big questions.